1: G'day and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we explore the challenging ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that I believe connects us. My name's Conrad, and if you're if you're a first time listener, first time tuning into the show, you're you're very welcome. A very good welcome to you. Uh, it's great to have you here, but but I do wonder if you're up for it. Um, some podcasts you listen to to be entertained. You listen to them for fun. That's that's fine. Others you listen to to get some new information to learn something new. Sadly, this show is probably neither of those things. Um, I'm not quite funny enough to entertain you, or educated enough to teach you anything new. So why listen, Conrad? Why am I here? What what's the point? Uh, well, I'm hoping the point is as you're listening to the episodes this one maybe some other ones i'm hoping you find some episodes that challenge you that trigger you that you disagree with and i hope that as you enter those spaces that challenge you and you disagree with and that trigger you i'm hoping that you begin to learn to enjoy looking at the world outside your echo chamber that's the purpose let's take a look around at the big wide world outside our our facebook fueled filter bubble uh let's that brings us to the clickbait also uh phenomenon given to us by Facebook or just new media in general, let's embrace it. The clickbait today is stripping changed my life. Which direction could that go? I don't know. Is it good clickbait? Is it not? I'm happy for new friend of the show, Harmony Grillo. Thanks for joining me. If you want to critique that clickbait, go for it.
0: Oh, do I? Oh yeah. You know what's hilarious about it? I don't know if you knew this, but um, it was the title of the Buzzfeed video that BuzzFeed did on me and it, yeah. And it got like across the platforms, it got like 12 million views, so it worked. But when I first saw it, I was like, that's a very, I mean, I know the person who produced the video, so I know her intention was like, get people to click on this Uh video. But like, I don't know that that's That's something I would overtly explicitly say, but when you really like dissect it, it did change my life in the sense that, Uh you know, it impacted me deeply. And the work that I do today is really founded in the time that I spent working in strip clubs under the control of a pimp. Hmm. So I guess it changed my life.
1: Hmm. (laughs) I guess I, I feel, I feel buzzfeed. If you want to hit me up, I, I came up. To, I came up to that uh, clickbait independently of no Buzzfeed, way. and I'm stoked to have gotten the same one as Buzzfeed. So hit, hey, give me a job, Buzzfeed. Actually, I don't. I don't want to work for you. I'm not. I'm not down on the clickbait. It's a good start, but it shouldn't be the end of the conversation. Harmony.
0: Oh, I was gonna say they. They. You know, they post it and post it again with another title. The other one was, um, how my childhood led me to stripping. So those were the two.
1: Oh, okay, not bad. I think anything with stripping in there really. I don't know. Gets gets people gets people in right. on it. Um, Harmony, if I'm gonna I'm gonna just guess at where you are and that's gonna determine the location. are, are you in LA? You're
0: just guessing? I am.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh well, I was looking at your at your feeds and everything. Oh. I don't know what this
0: how telling this background is.
1: <laughs> the painting is so like like just off broadway i'm trying to list la places i don't really know that many um okay so if if we were in la um i'm trying to think of a a place where we might run into each other i'm a i'm a fan of trader joe's i've I've been there i'm a fan uh i american listeners of the show i don't know if you like it or not let's say harmony do you have a frequent trader joe's I,
0: i do in fact i grew up next to the second trader joe's that was um you know in in the city. And it was, it was started here. First one was Pasadena. Second one was West LA. I grew up in Venice. So that was our grocery store of choice.
1: Mm. And uh, Australians are very sad to not have that. Our grocery stores suck. Mm. Uh, They suck hard and Trader Joe's is awesome. So how many, if we were to meet and run into each other outside of Trader Joe's or in a Trader Joe's looking at the peanut butter covered salted pretzels or whatever fancy item they've got in there. Uh, and I just met you surface level introductions. How would you, what is it the surface level questions like, Oh, what do you do? Who are you? Et cetera.
0: Are you're saying, how would I answer those questions? Cause I don't like asking those questions. I, I ask people how they spend their time.
1: How would you answer both those questions? How would you answer the, the surface level one? That's like, Oh, the Australians always go, Oh, what do you do? Oh, what do I do? That's like the identifying feature.
0: Nine times out of 10, I'll just say, Oh, I run a nonprofit because I don't usually want to get into the whole conversation Mm -hmm. and most people really don't care. And so they don't ask the second question. And then if they do ask the second question, what kind of nonprofit, depending on like the mood I'm in, I'll say, um, we support women. (laughs) And then if they ask the third question, I'll say, Uh we provide recovery services to women looking to escape exploitation and trafficking in the commercial sex industry. So that's how I do that one. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, We've, we've met in Trader Joe's and you can tell I'm interested. We're in for the deep conversation. Okay. And when, when you ask your question, how do you spend your time? How would you answer that one?
0: Um, I spend my time doing what I love. I have a a job that I love spending time with my family. We like hanging out in our backyard, family dinners, lots of koala bear cuddles with my toddler.
1: That doesn't that, um, koala bear cuddles that hasn't, breached the Australian uh, vernacular, but I think we should embrace this. It's my nickname <laughs> for him. He's my koala bear. Well, he'll be welcome in Australia then. Go to border control. Mum calls me koala. Oh, you'll fit right in.
0: Love
1: it. I'll be honest, Harmony. Okay. I know where you're from. I've heard a bit of a surface level introduction. We had a great chat. I asked a few questions. I now now know you work for a non-profit that, that, that helps women. Um, but maybe even people listening, friends of the show, we've been judging you. We've been making some assumptions uh, and instead of doing what maybe you know a lot of people do, they have the assumptions that, and they go away with them and go, ah, she's probably like this. I would like to confess those assumptions to okay. you and you can correct them where I'm wrong or off the mark. Uh, friends of the show love it when guests hit a strict yes or no. Cause it's, I think they like watching them squirm and go, ee, no. Um, but that's okay. I you.
0: love this. I love it so much. It's why I said yes. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, I just, oh, really good. Lo- that's what, I, just, that's I like challenging assumptions and I like having like g- good conversations. So let's do it. It's best
1: to get them off our chest. So the first one, this is a personal one for me. You're from LA.
0: I've been to
1: LA a couple of times. And you know, when you walk around LA, there's people walking. Everyone thinks they're cooler than me or better than me. I'll like smile at someone just randomly. Yeah. Here in Australia, we'll just be like, hmm, like you smile and they just hmm. it's a bit of a smile and an eyebrow raise, you know, an acknowledgement. In LA, bloody never happened to me. I'd give like an eyebrow raise, oh hey mate, like just to whoever, yeah, and they just look at me. I'm like, oh don't stab me, oh yeah. geez. Um, so you're from LA. You're not friendly.
0: You're 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 right. Oh, I'm not friendly. Oh no. But because the assumption is incorrect to start with, and here's <laughs> why. <laughs> um, I, I, yes. I believe that's your experience because that that is true. But people who are truly yes. native to L.A. are not like that. Here's what happens. The, a, a lot of people oh. throughout the nation, they grow up in their context. They have a big dream of being successful in entertainment. They're a big fish, small pond maybe even. They move to L.A., with these very exciting, awesome, maybe grandiose visions of what their life is going to be like. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of that self-importance, ego, striving, you know, because it's the mm-hmm. entertainment industry. But true LA natives, especially people from Venice, where I'm from, that that's not how we are at all. And we know that. So mm-hmm. I believe that's your experience. Okay. but. I'm a true LA native, born and raised, never lived anywhere else, and we're we're good people.
1: Okay, so that strikes the next assumption I had. I said you gotta be maybe like someone who's come to LA for acting slash waitressing.
0: That was another assumption. No, that's not me. But of course, I I mean, I went to junior high and high school in Hollywood, like in actual, like in actual Hollywood. So it's very difficult to live here and not end up at some point or another intersecting with the entertainment industry. So after I graduated college, I was like, you know what, I want to be an actress. So I studied with Howard Fine and I did the acting classes, and I, you know, got a little bit of work here and there. And then I decided uh, there were other things that I wanted to pursue.
1: Almost, almost, almost a yes. Because, yes
0: you know, also in, in LA, you go to the mall, like as as a teenager, and you, I was constantly being recruited by talent agents and modeling agencies, things like that. It's just kind of a part yeah. of the experience of being here. So it's hard not to get sucked in.
1: Jeez, no one approached me when I was in LA. <laughs> come on, talent agencies. I, is this mustache not, come on. All right. Um, so you're in LA, you've got to be like these Black Lives Matter eco-activist kind of Kind of person that protests, that rallies, like really, like woke.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you know what? Not <laughs> right, because good. not because well, it's but... cool. For real, for real though. Um, you know, I I was raised. Um, my mom was uh, an activist for Indigenous people's rights, and I was raised going to protests and um, you know fighting for justice and. You know, that, that's just kind of in my blood. It's in my DNA. It's who I am. So when it comes to any cause that I really care about, I, I am the type of person to show up for a protest and I am the type of person to, you know, say something. So, mm-hmm.
1: so and yet. You were an activist before it was cool. Correct.
0: Yeah. I was an activist when it absolutely <laughs> wasn't cool, like at all. I get yeah. it.
1: Yes, indie, an indie activist. All right. So this, then, then this next one might, might, I might be close. You're a feminist who hates men, like a man-hating feminist.
0: I am a feminist. I'm not a man-hating feminist, but I was a man-hating feminist, and and I don't know. It was no. feminism that made me man-hating. It was exploitation that made me man-hating for a long uh-huh. time. Didn't trust men. Thought uh-huh. you know that they, I just had very negative experiences with men, you know, history of abuse, history of rape, working in strip clubs. So I really did hate men for a very long time, but, um, I'm happy to say that that's not the case. And I have an amazing husband who is like super awesome, very honoring to women, my biggest supporter. Um, and I know some really good men. So, but I was, I was once that Mm. I'm still a feminist.
1: All right, then you've got to be, let's go with one of these like modern women empowered sex, whenever, whatever, like sex positive, like who was that Cardi B? Is it Cardi B? Oh, Cardi wow. B. Yeah. Is that so? I do like, love You're Card- like, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, you're down on that, that like new wave of like sex, sex, go for it. All good.
0: Well, okay. So I had this conversation with Brenda, who you just had on your show. I was on her podcast and we talked about this and I'm like, I don't think it's fair that that one kind of way of thinking gets to use sex positive because I do consider myself sex positive because I think sex can be positive and should be positive. And I am a fan of sex, you know? And at the same time, you know my husband and i waited until we were married to have sex so i'm i maybe i'm a different kind of sex positive cuz i definitely you know um was abstinent
1: you you mentioned okay you mentioned abstinence and waiting to marriage all right now you're sounding like some conservative christian like puritanical <laughs> kind of person <laughs> yeah. you're sounding like something like that
0: yeah i mean y- Okay. So I, I I was not raised Christian. I I was actually raised anti-Christian. I would go so far as to say by a family of like atheists and like kind of spiritualists. And because my mother was an activist for indigenous people's rights to from that, from that perspective, the Christian white man is the epitome of evil. And so it was actually, they, it was a huge deal when I became a Christian because they thought I was brainwashed. They thought I lost my mind. They thought I was selling out. Um, so that, that was a hard transition to make, but I say that to say I was raised in, in my mother. I mean, we went to, she took me to a, um, sweat lodge at a nudist count colony for, um, mother's day. Like, so very like comfortable with our bodies and comfortable with sexuality, very openly <clears throat> talked about sexuality. So I say all that to say, That I do not have the same baggage as a person who grew up in purity culture and where the purity culture messages were used in a way to repress sexuality or shame people about their sexuality and their bodies. I I was raised with very much like body positivity and, you know, I guess you'd say sex positivity. Mm -hmm. And so, but for me, because sex had been so often what was used to abuse and exploit me, I actually found great liberty and freedom in abstinence, I found um, just mm. a new sense of ownership over my body and, you know, just the ability to choose and self-efficacy. And then also for me, it was very important for me to develop a foundation of relationship with my, my the person I married to know that we really had true like relational intimacy without the sexuality interfering with it because especially because of my history so I'm definitely Mm -hmm. not Puritan religion purity culture background person Uh
1: you've you've touched well on, on some of the stuff I think I think we'll definitely dig into a little bit um and before we do that what have I hit any common assumptions I'm always trying to gauge whether like I'm hitting the mainstream assumptions have I missed any that you get um when you know when you come across people assuming things about you
0: um what else do people assume? I mean, I think there's a lot of assumptions around being a white blonde person in America, Probably assumptions that I come from privilege mm. um, and I, I acknowledge that I have privilege like white privilege I acknowledge that, but like that I come from a more privileged background um, or that I haven't had hardships mm. or um, that I've had you know, Silver platter type of life. Um, some a lot of assumptions around my intelligence, um, especially growing up. I was oh, dumb
1: blonde. That's an obvious one. How did I miss yeah. it?
0: And in fact, that's one I really played into because I I actually thought it was a very fun personal inside joke with myself to watch people think I was dumb, hmm. and I really loved doing that in the strip clubs and acting dumb and watching the way the customers reacted to their perceptions of my lack of intelligence. I just had fun with that.
1: So then to the clickbait, stripping changed my life. Um, And I I think (laughs) there's another one that kind of popped up, which is like, abstinent free- freedom with abstinence or something like that. That, that that might also be a good one in there um i and i think i saw i think i was reading one of your instagram posts as i was kind of reaching out and stuff like that and and you mentioned like you you wanted to take a break and hiatus from sharing your story and things like that so wherever you would like to go from and wherever you would like to go and wherever you would like to start whether it's starting at the clickbait, stripping changed my life. Where would you start with this, or what idea would you want to bring forward and communicate?
0: Oh, you okay? Wait, I need to understand the question. What are you asking me?
1: We 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 start at the clickbait, like stripping changed my life. Where would you start that story or that journey?
0: I see what you're doing, and you're honoring the fact that you have seen recently that I'm not like in a season where I'm really like retelling my story so i I, now i understand the question okay yeah that's
1: that's right My, my my permission in there was to awkwardly slip in the fact that share as much or as little as you think is relevant or helpful or as as much as you want
0: okay i so appreciate that thank you i so appreciate that yeah so i am in this season right now i've been telling my story for almost 20 years and it's actually gotten to where i'm like i can i can tell it and be just completely disconnected from it and um and quite frankly, tired of hearing it myself, and so um, and then just have had some interesting experiences with journalists and people that has made me just be like, you know what, I need to reclaim my story a little bit, and so with that, I don't mind talking about my story, and I don't mind referring to my story and drawing from my story. I just need a, a season of not telling this bullet point, summarized three million minute elevator pitch for the sake of the benefit of an audience that just tell me but tell me in three minutes, because I just want to, I just want to hear it. You know, like I just, I'm done with that. But, um, I don't, I don't mind the, the broader, deeper conversations around it because those are interesting to me. I'm just tired of the, I was born and raised and blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, with that said, what I will say is I did come from a background of a lot of the vulnerabilities that we see with women who end up in the commercial sex industry and exploitation and trafficking, poverty, abuse, domestic violence, you know, substance abuse, um, not me with, but with my parents. Um, and I became susceptible to an exploitative relationship. And so yes, stripping changed my life in that I spent a few years in that industry being exploited and, um, you know, that really shaped, I would say a lot of my worldview was shaped by my previous experiences of abuse, but being in the strip clubs just further kind of like solidified. Like we talked about my views about men, my views about sexuality, you know, just my identity was very, very disrupted by my time in clubs, which I'm happy to talk about more. We can get into. Um, And then essentially after being, after getting out of that situation, I knew that I wanted to do something to help other people who still maybe felt as trapped as I did. And so in 2003, I started Treasures and we, um, we help women find freedom and healing from the commercial sex industry, exploitation and trafficking. And that's what I've been doing for Mm -hmm. a long time.
1: I, I think you have a unique perspective, given the background and journey that you've been on and hope, uh, I think it'd probably be a more interesting conversation as to like, yeah, avoiding the stereotypical, here's what we want out of you with the same elevator pitch of the story and going into, I suppose, your unique perspective that encompasses where you've come from, but also where you are now in the work you're doing, because it's easy as I've, I've kind of delved on Artie's Digest into the sexuality space and I follow little rabbit holes and whoever kind of gets back to me and I just kind of go wherever it's not really balanced or anything. I just kind of follow wherever the rabbit hole leads me. Um, And I think a lot of the perspective I've been coming across is, is one of one that comes from the, uh, the being harmed by a Christian purity culture, a, like a, a sex negative, like avoid sex, that type kind of where, um, but potentially where Brenda, friend of the show, Brenda, who you spoke with um, and there's another friend of the show talk beauty to me where there's that, there's that perspective on sex and sexuality um, but you bring I guess a different perspective a different background to it what is your view on I suppose the sex industry and sexuality in general very broad but go where you would like to within that um, within that question there
0: yeah I mean I think like sexuality is a part of who we are we all have a sexuality and so it's for me, the journey has been figuring out how to connect to and express my sexuality in ways that feel healthy and safe and are, um, reflect my, my values and my, yeah, I get my values and my perspectives. And so for me, for a long time, um, sex was about Power and powerlessness it was about control and being controlled it was about survival um it was about victimization it was about exploitation it was transactional it was I was a and especially with you know the industry I was a product not a person um and my body wasn't my own in a lot of ways because it was you know in a way for sale um And even my own self wasn't my own. So for me, there's been – the part of the healing process has been figuring out how to manage and connect to and, you know, my own sexuality in ways that are healthy. And for me, abstinence was a part Mm -hmm. of that. It's actually funny because I don't know. I am a person of faith. I love Jesus. Um, And the first thing as I started, like, connecting and having relationship with God – the first thing that I thought was on my heart to do the major change in my life was not to leave the strip club. It was not even to leave the exploiter. It was to pursue abstinence, which was crazy. Like, you know, an abstinent stripper, like with an exploiter, you know, but what I think was for me, you know, the bigger tie in my life, the thing that was really holding me captive was the trauma bond and the relationship that I had with this abusive exploiter. And so the, one of my first steps towards freedom was to begin to reclaim my sexuality in that way of saying, I'm going to wait until marriage. And I knew I was risking the relationship, which even Mm. though for people who don't understand trauma bonds or people who don't understand cycles of abuse, um, you know it might be hard to say well what what is that who cares you're going to risk relationship with a person who's abused you for 7 years and is exploiting you but i really had come mm-hmm. to believe that my survival depended on that person but i got to the point where i was willing to risk even that to pursue what i felt like was healthy and good for me and mm-hmm. and it was actually very powerful because i believed that it was the first chain that was broken and the first step towards really me becoming free and becoming just disentangled from all of that.
1: Yeah. You're describing a form of abstinence, which generally would get a bad rap in the secular world being like, Oh, like clearly purity culture, you're ashamed of sex kind of abstinence, but you're describing an abstinence that is a control. It's, it's a, it's a, I guess, an empowered. No, it's an empower. It's, it seems like the opposite of what you're describing there as commodification, which I suppose strip clubs and prostitution is, the epitome of a commodification of a human right. being. It's like you are just what we're looking at physicality. There's nothing beyond that. You're a product and I can buy you. Is is that like, is that how you see the totally. industry?
0: Yeah. And then when you think about it, like with sexual abuse, it's your your consent is taken or overrided. But in the industry, your consent is is paid for. And either way, you kind of lose your consent, you know, and no, isn't even mm. really an option anymore in the commercial sex industry. Your job is to say yes. Um, yeah. So for <clears> me, it was very much about reclaiming my sexuality, taking back power, taking back control in a way that felt very empowering. And it didn't, there wasn't, it wasn't driven by shame or like oh my gosh what i did was so bad and dirty now i've got to get right and pure because i'm so bad and huh. dirty it was like oh wow i see how beautiful sex is and that it was designed to facilitate intimacy and connection and i and i and i i was void of intimacy and connection because you know intimacy is about knowing and being known but the whole industry is built on fantasy and my job was to become who other people mm. wanted me to be, who I was, my wants, needs, and desires. My self as a person didn't matter anymore because my job was to become what who the client wanted me to be or who my exploiting, you know, exploitive boyfriend wanted me to be. And so, yeah, I w- it was mm. like reclaiming all of that. And it was about intimacy and connection.
1: That's, I like how you've, put a lot of nuance into the word consent. Cause I think it's something that I suppose very like modern liberal societies like Australia and America, it's built on this idea of yeah, like consent, like respecting each other's freedom. And if you say no, that's fine. But it's, it seems like you've just shown how not cut and dry it is. So people might look at, they might go into a strip club and I suppose the story they tell themselves to the one of like capitalism, we're just fed is that, they don't have to be here they can leave they could just go get another job and i'm here and i've got my money and i can i can pay for this and it's all we're all consenting adults but you've just you've just kind of shown two levels of how your consent because you mentioned you just said your consent was overpowered by trauma and and then it was paid for so it's like is it consent if you need the money or if there's a high enough price like there's this I guess technically like there's consent in the surface level, but there's so much more like, can you have consent if you're really vulnerable? Can you have consent if you're trauma? Unpack those ideas for me as I'm hearing. Yeah. So
0: first of all, research shows, research done across, um, I believe it was seven countries, shows that 89% of women in the sex industry want to escape, but they don't see any other options for survival. So then what is choice without options? Is it choice if no Mm. isn't an option? My friend Autumn Burris says this, and it's brilliant. She said, When poverty is the, is the pimp, choice is an illusion. So it's, it, it is very tricky because choice is not always choice. But then you have the added layer to complicate things of the fact that part of our job, part of my job, was to sell the lie. So if you were to walk into the club and you were to say, Do you want to mm. be here? I wouldn't say, No, actually, I don't. I hate this job. I hate men. I wish I could be doing anything else in the world besides this. And by the way, I'm going to go home and give all my money to my pimp. No, I didn't say that. I said, oh, I love it. I get to make my own hours. We make lots of money and it's great and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I would say there's nothing inherently wrong with sex and there's nothing inherently wrong with being naked. And therefore, if somebody else wants to like – pervert those things, then that's not on me. And like disconnecting myself from the perversion that I was experiencing from the men. Um, And, you know, I said those things to, to the point I was in, there was a, there was a layer of denial and there was rationalization as well. And so I, I was paid to sell the lie, but I told it so often, I really sometimes believed it myself. And it wasn't until I was in those real moments of like clarity and honesty with myself, which were very rare and hard to come by because I really did become this alter ego that was Monique, who was built on fantasy, who was created to cater to fantasy, who was not me, who was a lie. And I really became lost in her, even to where she bled out into my real life where nobody even called me Harmony anymore. I was Monique in the club. And then because everyone I spent time with were people from the club plus my exploiter, everyone called me Monique. I remember when I first left and people would ask me my name, I would stutter because it was hard for me to remember to say harmony because I was that disconnected from myself.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot that you make me think about a lot of things at the exact same time. Um, like I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this personal invasion of commodification that, that happens as we might consent to being something for someone for like, you know, I go to work and I'm getting paid to be there and things like that. And this touches on what we might get into later, like friend of the show, Kevin, who's an only fans model. He's like, what's the difference? Like I'm getting paid to work out nude and send nude like dick pics to whoever is paying for them. Um, and you go to work and you might be a laborer selling your body to lift things. I'm selling it in a different way, but I guess you've, yeah, you've made me think that, and it might be the same with every job, but you've you've highlighted how when someone when you are a com, when you become a commodity, and you play into that commodification, it it seem you're saying it sounds like it changed your psyche enough, to the point where you you started to become the product that you pretended to be for people. Oh, for
0: sure, and then but also like. Okay. So the, the whole argument, it's just a job, right? Like we could, we could do two hours on that, but mm. I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. <let's> okay. Go. <laughs> so
0: first of all, yep. I can't think of any other job where you have to create an alter ego in order to make it emotionally and psychologically safe enough for you to do your job. Right. So Mo- Monique was, was created, what it she was, you know about the customers' fantasies and catering to all of that, but it was also about creating separation between myself and what the job requ- the job required of me, because Harmony mm. couldn't do those things. It had to be someone else. I still remember the first night I walked into the strip club for my first shift. The DJ said, "What what what's your name?" and he was about to write it on the the whiteboard where they had the rotation, and I said, um, "Harmony," and he wrote it, and it was black and white, and I just said take it down. I'll be Monique. And from that point, I developed that, that, that alter ego, that persona that was Monique to separate me from what I was doing. So first of all, I can't think of any other industry where mm. you you have to do these sorts of things to create psychological protection for yourself. But then also, um, mm. you know, it, it is shown across research in various areas of the industry that, Women in the commercial sex industry, including strip clubs, including porn and prostitution, are subjected to an extreme level of violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse, all of these things. And you know, for example, women in prostitution, eighty percent have been raped at least once, seventy-three percent have been raped more than five times, right? And the, this, and people are saying, "Oh, prostitution is just, just just a job," but in any other workplace, that level of se- sexual harassment alone would be subject to penalties, right? Like to criminal penalties. Mm. But for, for those of us in the commercial sex Mm. industry, sexual harassment is a job requirement, not to mention where you you start getting into Mm. the level of violence. You start getting into mortality rates, this sort of thing, like the, the amount of substance abuse issues that, that you see, and it's like chicken or egg, you know, are women using, are, are women in the industry to support addictions? Yes. Sometimes, but also women in the industry are using substances to be able to show up for work, because it's too hard to be present mm. for me personally, because of my history of trauma, I could dissociate. I have a, I had a very intense and incredible ability to dissociate, and so creating that psychological distance between myself and what I was doing. But for some people who you know don't can't do that as as proficiently, drugs and alcohol, right? And so it's not just a job. Mm-hmm. When
1: you were in the industry, and as you look at it now what leads people in to the sex industry in general is there anyone who is there anyone you've seen you've gone in and they go like you've said oh no i love it like it's great i get good money blah blah, blah. it's really good is there anyone who like do you it sounds like no one's everyone who might be saying that might not actually on some level believe it like is anyone there Because they actually want to be, or what leads them in? So
0: here's what I would say to that. Okay, so what leads people in? um, Often it's vulnerability. This is all. This is based on the research. I actually I'm a huge stat geek. If anyone's interested in like seeing the actual research that I'm referring to, on our website, and I don't know, you can put it in the show notes or whatever. We have a comprehensive statistical guide that breaks down every industry: porn, stripping, Mm -hmm. prostitution, trafficking stats violence, vulnerability. So looking at what are those factors of vulnerability that lead people there? What kind of violence do they experience when they're in that particular industry? How does it intersect with trafficking? How does it intersect with other industries? It looks at all of that. So if you're interested in your stacky, like me, go check it out. You can download it for free. But, um, what, what I will say is that I've lost my train of thought where what was I saying right before? I got so excited about the statistical manual. I mean, the, the comprehensive guide.
1: What, what lays people okay, in? I thank think you're you. yeah, link Okay. That's what I was going to say. Okay. What up to 90%
0: in. of women in the commercial sex industry, up to between 66 to 90%, depending on which research you look at, but far higher than the general population have experienced childhood sexual abuse. That's not a coincidence, right? Like I know for me, obviously, not everyone who is sexually abused ends up in the commercial sex industry, but most of us in there have that history in common. Sexual abuse, when you think about it, it normalizes the experience of being sexualized and objectified. And the other thing for me I can say is that the experience of sexual abuse is one of, like, incredible powerlessness. And one of the lures of the sex industry is that you can take back control of your sexuality and use it to your advantage. So... That that is one piece, right? Then, of course, you have poverty, lack of education, lack of employable job skills, um, homelessness. Huge, huge intersectionality between like homelessness and the commercial sex industry. So, a lot of these factors of vulnerability. It up to seventy percent of in the in the United States of trafficking victims are from the foster care system. So, there's so much vulnerability in the background of so many people who find themselves in the industry, and it's, it's often that vulnerability that drives them there, right? But then of course you have the cultural context, normalization of the sexualization of women, normalization of um male promiscuity, um norm pornification like (laughs) of our culture, like the the commercial sex industry being mainstream, huge demand, all of those kind of external factors um also play into it. But I will say I can't generalize and say 100% 100% of women in the sex industry or people in the sex industry say no, I don't want to be there. Right? If the research shows that 89% want out and don't see any other options, we're going to go ahead and say that's probably it's probably safe to assume that that's the group that maybe was led there by vulnerability or trafficking or whatever, right? But that leaves an 11% who might who who say I'm here because I want to be here, right? And I don't deny that the 11% exists, but if, if you truly, even the fact that they have a choice is privilege. So that's a different population than most of the people who find themselves in the industry in the first place. And then I will say I've had several experiences with people who are part of the pro-sex work movement who you know, came to me adamantly saying that they love what they do and they were empowered by it. And who am I to blah blah blah. And first of all, I'm not trying to say anything about you. I'm just sharing my experiences. I'm sharing some what the research says. Like I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to judge that or I've never in almost 20 years told someone they shouldn't work in the sex industry. That's not my place. Like you're like that's not and you don't have to, right? There's so many who actually want out and want support. So I just focus on that. But I've had so many experiences with people who did say pro sex work. I love it, I love it. But when you really when you don't fight that, I'm not trying to convince you. And when someone realizes like, I'm just gonna sit and I'm actually gonna listen and hear where you're at and try to connect with you as a human and learn more about you. So many times I've seen walls come down and them actually say, "You know what, Th- this is hard. This is hard, and I don't love it. And here's what's hard about it. But you know, it's I, I bet it's really tricky for people in that space because they, you know, if they do say that, I don't know. Anyways, I don't want to out anybody.
1: Because I can hear you're, you're describing how complicated, how nuanced, and how choice is at a very integral part to exploitation. If you have no choice, then if you're doing something with no choice, it's it sounds like that's exploitation. Whereas if you're doing something with choice, then... It's less likely to be exploitation, I suppose, because you actually genuinely have choice. And I don't hear you pushing forward one narrative or, or making your example as the example for all people. But then I like you are dropping statistics. Yes, if eighty nine percent of women in sex work want to get out, that does indicate. And if uh, if the sexual trauma, trauma in general, ha- is highly represented in this sample group of people, then you're kind of saying this indicates if people didn't have this trauma and if they had choice, there'd be 80% less people there potentially.
0: Yeah. If they truly had options, I would think so. I certainly would think so. Yeah. I mean, true viable options for survival.
1: And when you say that, you mean other job opportunities, educational opportunities, and relations, trauma, relationships, trauma, yep, relationships?
0: trauma-informed services to help them recover from the trauma they had prior to the industry, the trauma that they, you know, experienced while in their whatever context they were in, um, and then true opportunities to gain skills that would help them to find um, employment that would pay wa- a livable wage. And if that were the case, then I think a lot less people would do it
1: what then leads people out and what how did you get out because listening to your your book that you've written you you can I like I see the the patterns that have been painted of childhood sexual abuse and trauma and like you said sex being a part of just it's just you know a traumatized this trauma traumatic experience just seemed like a normal part of life for you and that and then needing a man to rely on kind of took your agency away and put that outside yourself and that all those factors it sounds like you are one of those statistics is that is that
0: right yeah no for sure my experience and <laughs> no. my life definitely reflected um the statistics and the vulnerability and absolutely all of that 100 percent.
1: so then it sounds like you also represent an even smaller portion of the statistics that leads people out of the industry. because if there are no choices, if trauma creates these traps, if the consistent commodification and getting hooked on the crack pipe of money, I suppose that we all are, you know, we're all just taking money where we can get it. And you like as I think you said in your book, like you earned a decent amount stripping. how then do you get out of it? If part of you wants to get out, but there's psychological factors, circumstantial factors kind of keeping you in?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I've spent 20 years trying to figure that out. Um, What I can say, you know, for myself is that I didn't have a master plan. You know, I, I always thought, okay, when I save up enough money, I couldn't save money. You know, I tried one time to open up a safety deposit box and every night hide away a little bit of money saved up, you know, think $10,000. And then he found out about it. So I couldn't save money. Um, there was never an ideal circumstance, but it just got to the point where it's like that, the, the quote, um, until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Most people prefer to stay the same. Mm -hmm. And it just got to the point where the pain of staying in that relationship and in that environment was too much. And it, the, like the balance tipped ever so slightly and I had to leave. And, um, you know, the, I think the big thing for me was this process of like reconnecting to the truth of my identity and who I truthfully and authentically am and was created to be. And the more I learned about who I am and who I was created to be, the less I could live in any kind of way that contradicted that. And so it was really just like that co- kind of cognitive, cogn- cognitive dissonance. And there was a night I was, I remember I was in the club and I thought, you know, if I really was put on this earth for a purpose, this can't be it. This can't be what I am meant to be doing. Um, and it was that kind of those kind of like revelations about my identity that were huge. And I, and I didn't have language for that at the time or, or understanding as to why, but now, now that I, I understand so much of the, especially when it comes to exploitation and trafficking, so much of the brainwashing and the manipulative tactics that traffickers and exploiters use are meant to tear apart your identity and rebuild an identity that is defined by and depends on them. And in that way they gain so much control and especially when it comes to, like, exploitation and trafficking, you know, the, it's not the money. Like, the, I mean, I could say it was the money at the time because that money was passing through my hands, but I wasn't actually spending it, right? And so it was the trauma bond, and it was this relationship for me. And I know this is not everyone's case, but it was this relationship that really was the, the bigger thing, keeping me trapped in. So I would say – and, you know, this is part – we train people – in best practices for working with survivors of exploitation and trafficking in women in the, the sex industry. And so we now we talk thoroughly about like, and this is in our trainings, like how do you actually help someone successfully find freedom, successfully exit, exit? And there are a few key ingredients. And one of them is rebuilding a, a sense, a new sense of true authentic identity and disentangling your identity from what that industry and what that world and what your previous experiences and your traumas as you are.
1: I'm curious to know how men play into this. Like I joking at the start saying, you know, you must be a man hating feminist, but listening to your story, I hate men <laughs> like listening to essentially your experience of men, it, it, like coming through that, like that would be the obvious reaction. Um, so I guess it, It'd be interesting to know as you describe your relationship as like your, the guy you were with as somewhat of a pimp, take, like you essentially earned the money, he spent the money. Describe that relationship to me. People might get this, like the caricature of a pimp in there, like with a gun being like, get out there back on the street and don't come back until you got more money. And like, was that what it was like? Or, or describe, I suppose was it a physical prison or some form of emotional or trauma prison that you were kind of held in, in this relationship?
0: Yeah. And you know what? Like podcasters take notes because this is how you interview someone. <laughs> I'm telling you like, but when I say, oh, I don't want to, when I say, I <laughs> don't want to, <laughs> yeah. When I say, I don't want to tell my story again, it's that three minute elevator pitch, but I don't mind answering questions like this Yeah. because I anyways, oh, yeah, great. totally. Absolutely. Um, but it does implicate the story that I said I wasn't going to tell, but now I want to because it has been drawn out by by okay, you, good. the interviewer. So that's why cool. I say podcasters take note. Oh, so the part of my story that
1: mid plug for audience <laughs> yeah, <artists. laughs>
0: the part of my story that has been um, drawn out at this moment is our our origin story, and he definitely he was not your what you would think of as a as a Pimp, you know, with like the gun and the, I don't know, the pimp cane and, you know, what you see in the media.
1: <laughs> pimp cane in the hat. Yeah. Yep.
0: All, you know, although he did come from gang culture and, you know, um, that kind of thing. But I, I had known him since I was 11. And we were, I mean, he was older than me, but we were kids mm. together. And there was this kind of strange experience. And what, why I didn't see him as my pimp or my explitter for so long of us having this kind of shared childhood experience in a way and him coming from a pimp culture and him coming from gang culture and not wanting to be that, but then becoming that. And so that, that was what was kind of like different about this. Um, And then just the, the way the relationship evolved and the way the dependency grew as part of it was that, you know, my mother abandoned my brother and I for a summer and we were left to you know to take care of ourselves and he would buy us food and he would you know tell us he's got our back and we live i venice where i grew up it it was very different in the 80s and 90s gunshots every night helicopters police wouldn't come after dark so when he said i've got your back and i don't have parents around that meant something right and when he bought food that meant i didn't have to steal from the liquor store and so it created this very this relationship where i became very dependent on him. Um, and really, truly developed this like, deep seated belief that my survival depended on him. So the relationship was like super codependent and trauma bonding and all that. And then it became over time emotionally and physically abusive, but it kind of like grew into that. So it was harder for me to see it because it wasn't your s- typical exploitation trafficking situation. Not that there necessarily is a fully typical one, but. He didn't like find me on the streets and recruit me, right? Like, like it evolved and developed over time. And we had this shared history that made that bond even deeper. Um, And, and like many, but the, the thing that I do see very common is this, he's my boyfriend, but actually he's your pimp, right? So that, you know, and he was using me to recruit other women in the club. And I just saw, I didn't see it that way. I didn't see that he was using me to recruit them. And like, I just saw, I was like, dang it. He's sleeping with more women and they're giving him their money too. And now I have to compete with them to make sure I'm giving him more money than they are. So I am more valuable to him. Um. So yeah, it was a really twisted relationship. That
1: world you describe, I suppose is probably very, foreign for for many people listening because i would think so it's like as you listen to your story you're going okay you sound like a very strong independent woman earning money and then somehow like money i guess in in some level is this ticket to freedom it's like if you got money you got options on on some level but but you're describing like a very nuanced psychological uh thing that's going on where you when you're working nights working overtime doing everything that he asks and then giving him your money and then not and not thinking what a loser go get a job yourself yes. like that's a it's a hard thing i suppose for people to get their head around and and it sounds like in at the time like you said you didn't see him as your exploiter mm-hmm. when did you start to go that's hang on this is exploitation hang on like how did you break that? How did that, the invisible become visible?
0: Well, here's what's funny is that I started to recognize that he was my pimp. Wow. Well, like towards the end before I left, but you. this is what's important to understand too. I left that relationship in the industry in 1998. I believe it was. It was either 97 or 98. I think it was 98. Um, And the Trafficking Victims Protection Act had not passed. Nobody talked about, there was no terminology for trafficking. Nobody used the word exploitation. And so I was already involved in doing this work and leading Treasures Not because there was a trafficking movement to be a part of, but because I just thought I was in this one situation that felt really terrible and trapping to me, and I know there are other women who want support and help to get out, and so I want to help them. And it was through the process of leading treasures and becoming a part of the anti-trafficking movement, quite frankly, that I began to see the exploitation in my own story, and that I began to see the coercion and the trauma bonds and you know, all of those elements. Um, but yeah, hmm. it, I didn't, I, you know, cause I started so early, there wasn't even language for it.
1: You got out how you got in, which is like the, this very slow realization that the momentum slowly sounds like it builds as you, um, I think pointed out that abstinence was the first step towards, okay, now I'm going to take control of this part of me. And then that creates a little bit more space. And then the it slowly builds up until you're finally given a language that says, like, that says, "Of course, you would be really attached to that." From eleven, you've said, "You are my safety. Yeah. You, you keep me, like, alive." And so, then from that perspective, I guess that's the understandable part of it that only you discover later when you're finally given the the terminology to identify. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was a process, and it was a process, and then it was a suddenly. <laughs> Um, and one night I was just like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And um I actually had been praying the whole way of the strip club that that I would be able to get out somehow. And just really I actually felt I was in the club and I had this moment where I felt like my eyes were opened. Like I was looking around and seeing all these things that I had seen for all these years that looked very normal to me, but I felt like I was looking at them through different eyes and I just, it was um, jarring to me, even though, like I said, everything I was looking at was totally normal in that context. But I was like, whoa, like this, you know, so it's kind of this eye opening when they say eye opening experience, it was that. And then, you know, I just remember thinking like, I can't leave. I have bills to pay. Like, you know, what am I going to do? I don't have a, I don't have anything to put on my resume. I don't have a backup plan. I don't have a savings account mm. at that point. At that part point, I was Um supporting two apartments, two cars, supporting him and his baby's mom and his baby. So (laughs) it's
1: so I don't even think I could do that. It's
0: so crazy. Like I haven't even talked about that in a long time. To think back to that. It's wild. It's so far removed from who I am today. But that that's that was the reality. And um but yeah, I just felt I really felt like God was like, I'm gonna take care of you.' I've, I'm I'm not gonna let you down. I'm gonna take care of you. And I just walked right up to my manager and I was like, i'm I'm leaving. And he was like, for the night, and I'm like, no, i'm I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. And he looked at me like I was crazy because I was like one of the top earners in the club and nobody leaves. Nobody leaves. I had only seen one woman leave, and it was because she married a rich customer, let alone like, just up and quit, right? But I went to the dressing room mm. and I sold all my clothes one by one, and because I didn't want to, like be like, oh, I can go back for one more night, and I never went back until I started doing mm. outreach and strip clubs.
1: <laughs> describe for me, and I've heard you mention it a few times. Describe for me how Christianity plays into all of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I met a girl whose friendship really changed my life. She, um, she loved Jesus and she had boundaries and self-respect and, um, it was just a great person. And I was like, gosh, like what's going on with her? And I felt like she had something that I was missing in my life and I was drawn to her Mm -hmm. and she was very loving and not judgmental. Never once should on me. Like we call, when you say you should do this, you should do that. You should do this. (laughs) Like she never should on me. She just loved Mm. me. And I, I actually, you know, she'd invite me to church. I didn't want to go last place I wanted to be. And, um, Mm. but she would take me to frozen yogurt. She would take me, you know, would go to coffee. And then eventually, I, I, I actually only ended up going to church with her because my grandmother was in town and I thought that's something my Southern Baptist grandma would enjoy. <laughs> so it was like more entertainment for her. And I'd never, I'd never, I'd been to church once mm-hmm. in Texas on Father's Day, but I'd never been in a church because growing up, my mom would always say, when I go to Texas, you don't have to go to church with them. So you get to say no when they say, we're all going to church. And I'd be like, no, I'm not going to church. My mom says, I don't have to go to church and yeah you know, so that that's who I was but um yeah i just really i i started going and i wanted to be there and it just was really led to this whole kind of awakening and um me developing a relationship with god that really truly changed my life
1: what did you find at church when you went what 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 story shifted when you say a relationship with god what is it that you're talking about
0: well, you know, it was, it was also a process it, and it, it was, um, it felt really safe. It felt really safe. Um, I remember being really drawn to the diversity because I grew up in very diverse con, a very diverse context and in a neighborhood that was primarily black and Latino, my brother and my dad who raised me are Mexican. My sister that I was raised with was black, but I found there weren't a lot of places in the world that were that integrated besides Venice. Um, but this particular church was, and that felt really safe to me. Um, and then the thing that really was the kicker, because the thing that was really the kicker was a ma- hearing going to an event and hearing a man share his story of being a drug addict and having um, lived on the streets and overcoming that. And he shared the scripture, John fifteen 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Um, if you uh, remain in me and I'll remain in you, and apart from me, man can do nothing. And then it goes on to talk about the, the withered branch and I just remember feeling like I'm the withered branch disconnected from God. And I, I don't, all I know is I just want to feel connected to God, like whatever that means to abide in him. Like, I want to feel that, like I want to be connected like that. And that is actually the moment I decided to pursue abstinence was that moment. And it really was, you know, relationship for sure. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what it looked like.
1: Yeah. When, when you're describing like abide in him, is that, am I hearing you describe like a different story, a different narrative, a different view of yourself, a, like a different w- way of engaging or looking at the world? What is it when, what is it, I suppose, to like abide in him?
0: I have intimacy, relationship, authentic connection, being seen and known and loved period like um I never the you know i the kind of religion that's like clean yourself up and get your act together and then come to God so he'll like that I never I never thank God no one ever preached that God to me because I wouldn't have been into that but it truly was like I felt God's love and his goodness and his kindness and I felt I i that there was hope for my life and, um, that there was healing for my pain and that there was the opportunity for wholeness. And it was all of that, that I was drawn to and wanted. And so to me, abiding in him meant like, I think being being safe and having access to all of that.
1: Yeah. You're, you're definitely describing, A picture of church and religion that doesn't sound like the stereotype that you hear now a lot of friends of the show that have come on have probably exited christianity finding it abusive unhelpful judgmental and you're describing a space that you walked into that's safe that's non-judgmental that's telling you a story of yourself that you are not just a commodity you are valued you can heal there is growth there is acceptance that you do have inherent value you're kind of describing i suppose what i suppose what many christians would already would already say that christianity is
0: yeah and i you know i do want to say there's no perfect church for sure obviously um but i am thankful and i'm i am lucky enough to be someone who has not experienced any severe church hurt and also mm-hmm. i was raised by just radical enough of a person that i've bucked against institutionalism just enough to make me like it for me it hasn't it's not tr- like It's always been about my relationship with God first and foremost, and church has been a place Mm -hmm. and I have loved church and I'm so thankful for my experiences in church and recovery classes in church. And I'm friends with my pastors and like all Mm -hmm. of, all of that. But it's like the church has been a place that helps facilitate my relationship with God. But my relationship with God has always been the foundation of everything. Um, I don't know if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's always, I always, I always push my guests to articulate uh, because spirituality and and God is a, it's, you know, God can be a placeholder for, for many different experiences. And so I'm always trying to like dig that specific because, you know, everyone can use the word God, but then what is it in, in your experience when you say it, that makes it like, you might be talking about something slightly different. Uh, One question I have is, is it necessary, like, would you have found a way out if not for going to church and finding quote unquote God.
0: Um I I I feel like God is big enough that he would have figured out a way. Like, but you know, um
1: mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yes and yes no yes and no. Yeah. Um and it it
0: yeah. was it wasn't like it's not the building of a church. It's the community and the the love and the the relationship that I experienced. It really it really started with the friendship, right? And that wasn't like that that didn't start in the walls of a church. That was a friendship, that that relationship, a reciprocal relationship that was healing to me. Um, but yeah, and God is so big. The first person who ever prayed for me was the manager of the strip club. And you know I just feel like God is moving in crazy places in crazy ways. And so I would never want to underestimate God and be like, if it weren't for, he wouldn't, I never would be here. I just think he would have had to find another creative way. But, but this just happens to be... The way that it happened for me
1: yeah you're definitely describing a big a a bigger god bigger than when you say bigger bigger than like just one narrow tradition one narrow pathway yeah um yeah i i I hear that coming across why i suppose why don't you hate men
0: oh i've never been asked that question why don't i hate men
1: um (laughs) because cause listening to your book, yeah, I'm I hate men. <laughs> I'm like why would like why wouldn't you? I feel like that's that's actually normal. You, you, like your your journey just just is the archives of abusive like, like specifically men you, like and it, and you've described like sexuality and sex and commodity. it's all about like power and men seem to be at the top of this power yeah. game where women are vulnerable and they abuse them in many different ways and it's about power yeah. and if it's always about power and men are always at the top why not hate men
0: okay so thank thank you for talking a little bit cuz it gave me a chance to to listen to you but also to think a little bit <laughs> no worries. um okay so first and foremost forgiveness like i very much believe mm. in the the statement that my angela said when she said um Forgiveness is setting someone free and realizing the prisoner was you. So for me, the journey to not hating man began with that. Like it hurt me to hate them more than it hurt them. Like the first person, the person who raped me, he actually ended up um, crazy enough getting shot in the head and he survived. And he became homeless, still homeless to this day, and incredibly mentally incapacitated due to the – the brain injuries from the gunshot, um, from the bullet. And he, I ran into him a few times and he actually, he showed up at my doorstep of my childhood home one day when I happened to be there. And he said to my mom, Hey, is Harmony here? And you could tell that it didn't even seem like he knew time had passed, let alone that we're not speaking because you raped me, right? Like would that, we haven't, that's not happening anymore. Right. And I could tell the few, and I ran into him a few times and it was really wild. And I could tell, like, he really had no recollection of the pain that he had caused me. And truly, like, I was holding him prisoner, but with my unforgiveness, but he, but I was the one who was prisoner, right? So just that journey to forgiveness was the starting place. And it didn't mean that I necessarily thought, much higher of men. It just meant that I couldn't afford to keep hatred in my heart anymore. But then I had a lot of what we call in in my field, corrective experiences with men where beginning with the first intern who volunteered with treasures and convinced me to allow other men to volunteer. And I said, fine, they can mop the floors, but they can't come when the women are here and blah, blah, blah. And all the boundaries and all the rules, which were meant, you know, to keep women safe. But Um, seeing these group of men, my husband being one of the first ones, he wasn't my husband then, but one of the first ones to sign up and every week in my office, putting together gift packs, putting together care packages, cleaning our toilets, cleaning the floors and just serving so that our jobs were easier and we could do the work that we were doing to reach and care for the women. That was a very correcting experience Mm -hmm. for me. And then, um, experiencing healthy love from a healthy man, um, has also been very beautiful and very healing.
1: How do you view those men and men in general who go to strip clubs and look at porn and I guess engage on the consumption side of what you're describing as a very exploitative industry? Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that because then my overall, over time, my, my perspective shifted a lot to where I, I, Just the same way I began to see the the brokenness and the roots and all the things that are, you know, that relate to the, those that find themselves in the sex industry, exploitation and trafficking. Um, you know, when you look at the lives and histories of many men who are consumers or, you know, um, you know, sex buyers or what, whatever, depending on the industry, there are reasons there, there are roots there, there's histories of abuse, there's trauma, there's loneliness, there's disconnection, there's like all these things. And, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't justify some of the awful things that are done, but it helps me have understanding to see that the whole system is broken and every side of it, there's brokenness, right? And so it's helped me have more compassion and less anger. Um Yes, yeah, So it's helped shift things to see that mm. like the rates of sexual abuse. And, and again, this doesn't justify, like I, there's this one quote, like my abuser, my, my abuser's abuse doesn't justify the abuse. My abuser's tra- oh, my abuser's trauma doesn't justify the abuse. My abuser's trauma doesn't justify the abuse. Mm. Like that is so important. Right. But at the same time, yes. it's, it helps yes. me, it helps my heart to know, you know, and to see like, for those who struggle with sexual addiction, the histories of sexual abuse in their background is, is super high as well, you know? Mm. And so some of it's acting out of trauma, Mm. but anyways, my abuser's trauma doesn't justify my abuse, but that has helped me have compassion.
1: Mm. Yeah. You're describing a integrated web of trauma and abuse and men sit in a position in society where their trauma is passed on in many cases to women in really traumatic and harmful ways as they process their trauma and take it, and 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 the women seem like the collateral of right. that.
0: Yeah, in a lot of cases. And then I I I also want to just say for the listeners, I'm using a lot of female pronouns. I talk about women because that that is the the population mm-hmm. that we serve. But I do want to acknowledge because I know a lot of my, our survivor. Brothers out there feel left out of these conversations. So it is important to acknowledge that men and boys also find themselves in exploitation and trafficking and, Hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. they're often overlooked and not talked about and not researched and, um, and feel very invisible in these Mm -hmm. conversations. So I always want to try to make sure that I acknowledge that because I do use a lot of feminine pronouns and, you know, 99% of sex buyers are men. And a big part of the demand is men. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I want to acknowledge that.
1: Mm, there's still men caught up in that, in that same pattern that you're describing that you went through. Yeah. Is, is there any good porn friends of the friend of the show, um, Kevin, uh, friend of the show, uh, Nicole only fans, they're loving it. I had them on the show and they were like, yep, I'm totally loving it. It's empowering. It's great. Um, I'm making lots of money. This is awesome. Is there any good porn?
0: Yeah, in my humble opinion, I, I do not believe so. I believe that it's inherently exploitative. Um, and I don't think so. And then it's like people have said like, oh, can you ha- can you hear someone say like, oh, can you, what about traffic-free porn? Like you never, I mean, you're talking about a different, different situation with content creators on OnlyFans and you're talking directly to that person. But in general, when you're talking about the porn industry, there you there's no way of knowing the kind of coercion or victimization or vulnerability or what factors led the person to being in that scene that you're watching in the first place. Um, so that, that's a huge problem as well. That's super problematic.
1: So when, when someone like Kevin or Nicole might say to you, no, I'm not being exploited. I have a choice. This is empowering for me. I'm connecting with my fans, my audience. This is great. What, What's your thoughts or response well, to that? Well, first
0: of all, I'm not going to argue with them. That's just not, not, that's just not in my wheelhouse. That's not what I do. And I'm not here to try to change their, that's their, that's their perspective, right? And that's their experience. And I can't argue that that's their perspective and experience. But I, what I would say is there's too many people for whom that is not the perspective and an experience and going back to the data that we talked about earlier So perhaps they are part of the 11% that are privileged enough to be able to say, this is my choice. So they're a part of the 11% and I can't change that. That's their experience, right? But there are too many people, in my opinion, who are being exploited by this system um, for it to be a good thing.
1: Mm. Who might even be saying, like you said, you once said, this is my choice. Right. And for you, that wasn't. Right. And I did a whole thing
0: on OnlyFans. If people Um, want to look it up, like uh, I did a blog and a mm -hmm. video, the dark side of OnlyFans, um, because I do think that so many people are falling prey to these cultural narratives that like, oh, you can just get on OnlyFans and take foot pictures and make a lot of money. And you, oh, you can, oh, so-and-so made a million dollars, right? When the average income, the median income is $187 Mm -hmm. a month and what is actually required of people on OnlyFans and the kind of, like, interacting you have to do in the messages yeah. with the men who you're like, oh, I'm going to get on here and I'm just going to do a bikini pic and it's just like Instagram, but I'm getting paid. No big deal, right? And you might get your little subscribers and get yeah. your little money, but then they're like, hey, if you want me to, you know, keep subscribing, you got to do nudes, you got to do this, you got I'm to not, – I'm not even going to repeat the kind yeah. of things because they're just too vulgar, but, you know – there's, mm. they're always going to require more the, that's the thing with sexual addiction. It's, mm-hmm. it's progressive. And so the demand is always going to mm-hmm. require more in order to appease them. And if you are the person mm-hmm. that is being paid to meet the demand, um, then that's, that can be a very difficult position. And it's very easy to, you know, have your boundaries pushed and be coerced into, or, you know, whatever, like pressured into doing more than you thought you would.
1: Friend of the show, Rody put through a while back in the, in the chat here. He asks, do you think this sex positive movement of expressing sexuality so openly and loudly like, you know, Cardi B's WAP is an expression of freedom and taking back the power or is it pandering to uh, just the consumption and the over-sexualization? Is it just part of that machine?
0: Oh, it's like chicken or egg. Like, is the music a product of our culture or is our, you know, like, um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, can you repeat the question one more time? So I make sure I'm really, like,
1: how do you view, how, how do you view what we see as like, let's just take Cardi B for example. It's like this, this empowerment of, of female sexualization, or that's how I guess the mainstream narrative is like good on women. Right. But then there's the argument that's like, you've just bought, you've, you've just embraced now, commodification. You're now just part of that machine. And is it right. just, is it just uh, women now embracing the commodification and now it's empowering because you've embraced it rather than fighting it? Or do you yeah. actually think it, it is empowering and it is a good thing to to have that?
0: Right. So as a practice, I don't like to talk about specific people because they're real humans, and I think it's so easy to dehumanized celebrities. Um, so I'm going to avoid the Cardi B specific conversation, but what I will say is I do think that there has been, um, a pornification of our culture and almost an, an internalized sexism where women have historically for so long being been sexualized and objectified that we are now sexualized and objectifying ourselves. And, um, there's a really great book by Ariel Levy called Female Chauvinist Pigs that talks about this kind of phenomenon of internalized sexism. And in a lot of ways, we've really developed a um, picture and a model of sexuality that is very much informed by what we see in porn. And I think this is actually the backlash and the pendulum swing of purity culture, because if we're so afraid to talk about sex and sexuality and there's body shame and there's, you know, sex isn't seen as a positive thing and as a gift and as a beautiful thing, then the flip side of it is like the only place to learn about sex. And this is so many people, right? They got handed a Playboy magazine. Their parents showed them porn. Many people I've talked to have had their parents, their father hire a woman in prostitution for them to lose their virginity to right. Like, so we are, we are modeling our sexuality off of the porn industry, partly because there have been not a lot of healthy, open dialogues about what sexuality actually can and should be and look like, right? And so the point that Arielle Levy makes in her book, Female Chauvinist Pig, is that when you look at the sexual abuse rates among those who are in the industry, we are actually modeling our sexuality off of a group of sexually traumatized people. And is that healthy sexuality?
1: Harmony, thank you so much ta- for taking so much time to, to chat with us. I could keep going, but I won't. <laughs> is there anything you might want to sum up, add to, get to that you didn't quite get to that you wanted to? Is there anything you want to add?
0: Um, let's see. I would say one thing I'm super passionate about right now is a, is educating people on the debate around full decriminalization and how actually harmful and catastrophic that would be to fully decriminalize prostitution. So I recently did a TEDx talk on it. So if people wanted to look that up, I'm really wanting to equip people to dialogue about that in intelligent ways because there is such a push to fully decriminalize prostitution and it would be really terrible for the anti-trafficking movement for that to happen. So I want people to understand that. Um, and if people wanted to check that out, um, They can, it's harmonygrillo.com forward slash TEDx and the the talk is there or you can Google it or whatever. It's called The Oldest Oppression in the Book. And then of course, if you have listeners who are women who are in need of support, have worked in or are currently working in the sex industry, experienced exploitation and trafficking, please have them connect with us. The Treasures website is iamatreasure.com and they can sign up for a free care package there. We'll send them a free copy of my memoir, Scars and Stilettos and get them connected to we have virtual support groups so they don't even have to be local to LA they can be other places um but we'd love to get them connected to support if they need it
1: and if if anyone else wants to connect with you in any other way where's where's the best of like your books on My, Amazon Audible I know it's on Audible cuz I bloody listen It is to it. on
0: Audible and I got to record it myself so that's fun it's on Amazon it's on the treasure's website i am a treasure.com but also on Instagram, I think I'm sure I have a link in my link tree and it's at Harmony Grillo, so you can find me there.
1: If you're listening to this podcast and you're disagreeing or you're triggered by it, then congratulations. And you made it to the end, obviously. If you have made it to the end and you're triggered by it, congratulations. You've successfully participated in Ideas Digest. Uh, if you found it an easy listen, then uh, send through a question that you think I missed. What did I miss? Where we could have gone? I can't see all the questions at the same time. Uh, and you can help me get better at asking questions, but if you made it to the end and it triggered you and you disagreed and you hated the whole thing, also send me a DM and I will send you a gold, a limited edition gold emoji gold medal emoji you've earned it because that's the point if if you can sit through a different worldview then i mean you've just experienced the world outside your echo chamber and that's that's the point here so harmony thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to us and talk vulnerably honestly openly i think that's what always makes a really good um conversation thank
0: you thank you for being such a great interview i really enjoyed i i normally don't do podcasts this long but i really enjoyed this conversation this was really awesome so thank you
1: Phew. <laughs> okay good that's the thing as soon as it starts to get a bit over i'm like oh man i hope they're not sick of it but i'm just getting started no all good thank it. you so much if you want to reach out to us ideasdigest at gmail.com on instagram join us for the live conversations you can be part of the conversation thanks everyone for tuning in and i will catch you in the next episode